Hey there, I'm Gilad Barash, and welcome to Who's Your Data, the podcast that deals with how data influences life and how life influences data, the human side of data analytics. Welcome to Who's Your Data podcast. In this episode, I chat with Rich Edwards, CEO of Mindspan Systems, about the changing tech and data landscape for financial institutions, especially big banks versus regional ones, and how Mindspan turns tech into a commodity and data from what was once a regulatory liability into a democratized operating asset. In this age of consolidation, we chat about how data is the smaller bank's secret weapon to improve service, add innovation, and combat bias in financial data that has historically barred access to services from underrepresented communities. We also chat about how financial data is shared more broadly among the financial institutions through the open banking framework and what that means for privacy and competitiveness. Let's get to the interview. Rich, welcome to Who's Your Data. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Sure. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about your background in the financial sector? I have a rather unlikely career path. Started off in the military out of college, was an engineer officer for several years, and this was in the 90s, so it was a totally different experience than it has been for the past 20 years. Got out of the Army in, in 99 and uh, worked in operations, worked a little bit in manufacturing, ended up going back to school and got my MBA, and then ended up at, at IBM, and eventually in their software business. And I spent a lot of time in kind of core infrastructure, data center automation, you know, that level of tooling and product management. And a huge chunk of our, our customers were uh, financial services, banks, uh, government entities, you know, think like uh, uh, central banks, social security administrations and the like internationally. Um, so it was, you know, these very large data sets very high availability requirements, critical systems, you know, like the systems of record type discussions and spent a lot of time working with them, kind of understanding requirements, what they were doing from what they needed to serve and what they were really using their systems for. Like the, like, what is the problem we're solving for you? That, that was, uh, you know, Wall Street and London and, and, you know, all across AP and Europe and, uh, you know, how many times I've been to Geneva, you know, like that. It was like that type of job, like talking to customers, which which was great. It was cool. Very much under the radar, you know, you kind of fade into the background with what you're doing because you're kind of dealing with this like three or four layers down infrastructure, but you really understand what's going on and kind of talk to everybody who keeps the trains running on time. And in 2013, I got tapped to go work in this new business unit um, which eventually became IBM Watson. They hadn't called it that yet. And this was kind of in that time period between when they did the whole Jeopardy thing, which got a lot of attention, and they started to actually have commercial offerings. And what I got brought in to do was around a new business unit that was going to allow IBM's customers to build on top of the technology as opposed to it being like a a, uh, a service product or, you know, there's a lot of work that had been done in the healthcare industry around cancer in particular, um, which was which was largely kind of think of it as like knowledge management, almost like a very large scale business consulting process, right? Like a lot of services, very heavy. And this was like, no, we're going to have APIs available where you're going to be able to call our services and build it into your own product, which was 
a very new thing for IBM in particular, but for the industry. There had been some things in, in the artificial intelligence space, uh, particularly around text-to-speech. Google was very big on this with the Android um, capability and their SDK that they had. So there was a lot of things that they were doing there from a telephony standpoint. But when you got into like natural language processing, some of the more really kind of compute intensive analysis and really applying people understanding, people analysis, you know, things that kind of extracted that from just that like transactional aspect of it. It was, it was fairly new. I had no business being there from my background or anything. It was largely because I had been around in the software business for a long time and kind of knew how to get things done. And so they needed somebody to help, you know, push things out to market, but ended up kind of being in this place at this time between this new technology combined with, I was the guy that, you know, could go and talk bank and do all the bank discussions. So then I became the guy that went and talked Watson to a lot of banks like for several years. And that was fantastic. Was able to build out a uh, developer evangelism team and, you know, really kind of saw that on the front end from, you know, for those first couple of years. And so from there, <clears throat> eventually I left IBM and joined the firm I'm with now, MySpan Systems, where I'm, I'm CEO. And, you know, it was really seeing the, the interaction between the technology that is available to companies, particularly financial services, because that's where our, you know where our focus is. The technical hurdle from the skills required for customers has come way down. In this past 10 years, one of the biggest trends I've seen is the democratization on the technologies, meaning the competitiveness is not coming from the algorithm. It's not coming from, you know, who has the best infrastructure, who has access to the most compute capability. And that was, you know, largely a piece dividend from cloud migration. It's been more and more about the data, the data that you have and what you're able to use to train some of the more, even at this point, very competitive open source product, right? Not, not even like, you know, you know things that you're going to have to buy a proprietary system from. So the combination of those two things is what really kind of drove me to kind of look for an opportunity and what led me to MindSpan system. My first question to you around MindSpan is, is what is the problem that it solves and how is that need identified? Yeah, no, no, good, good question. If the idea is around the value of the data, right? Where is data valuable? You know, who values it the most? And what I really kind of figured out through a lot of discussion and trial error was it was areas where there's a fairly significant regulatory component, which for the most case, there's a lot of edge cases, but really it's around healthcare and, and finance and money, financial services. Um, and uh, we actually have clients in both spaces, but we tend to skew towards the financial services side. Um, and the the angle there is the companies that have the data, the companies that are the providers that are the players in there, they understand that, that there's a fairly high liability for the data that they have, particularly anything that gets into personal health information. You, you begin to look at like HIPAA regulations and around that, personal uh, identif identifiable information, which in general is kind of becoming more of a third rail for companies. You look at what's happened with GDPR, with California's regulations, like that's that's only going in one direction. And then financial services has its own, you know, alphabet soup level of, 
regulation around how consumer information is handled and how it's brought together. You look at the companies that are playing in that space and they take that very seriously. Their, their compliance efforts by mandate, by regulatory mandate are, are fairly significant. They take it very seriously. What they're not doing largely as, as a group is leveraging that information to provide better and more competitive services to their customers. Um, and part of that gets into this idea of, of governance. Governance, a lot of times, is thought of as 98% of it is compliance, right? Have, have you not done the bad thing, the thing that's going to get us fined, the thing that's going to get us in the newspaper, right, for having a breach, for sharing the wrong information, for you know, having uh, an AWS VM unprotected that somebody got access to, and now I have to tell every single customer exactly what happened and offer them identity protection for two years, right? Like all of that. And then this little tiny bit over here of like, well, but let's also make sure that if somebody wants to put together a, a, a dashboard or, you know, some executive reporting capability that we make that available to them, but we're going to make it very difficult and hard. That's kind of the posture for a lot of these organizations. And, and what they're missing is the idea of, you, you have this ability to kind of treat your customers as individuals, unlike you've been able to do before. This whole idea of like, let's get to a segmentation process, a segmentation approach, where we're looking at a segmentation of one, a segment of one. I'm talking to an individual and trying to understand them as an individual, not as part of a demographic group or a particular socioeconomic group or where they live by zip code, but who they are as an individual by what they're doing, how they behave, and what we know their needs are from that. And then treating them that way and, and being able to serve them as an individual. This gets into a, a little bit about um, what traditionally has been the competitive advantage for smaller banks and credit unions, kind of think about community banking. You, you talk to anybody in that space and they will say, you know, what's your competitive advantage, right? Like, how do, why do you exist? How do you stand out? And, and many of them have like more than a century of history um, together. Just some of it's structural, but legitimately hundred year old companies in the space. And they will say to a T, it's, it's our, our, our service level, our ability to understand, know, and treat people, the, the communities that we serve as our neighbors, because we live here, we're small, we're very well connected. Structurally, they're able to act and interact with their communities way differently and treat risk way differently than larger organizations do. When you look at things like, um, their participation in small business, particularly like the Small Business Administration loan programs. When you look at um, their participation and, and their support of commercial real estate, community financial institutions punch way above their weight class, their representation in that, their participation in it, which means there's a whole lot of stuff that happens in, in your neighborhood, in your community, only because there is a community financial institution that was able to finance it. Malls office buildings, housing, small businesses that are that are in the organization. They are only there because they had this access to financial services through this small organization, you know, who were who were going to like take those risks 
engage in projects that a larger at scale organization won't. So that that's that's really when they say our service level, our service level to our community. That's really what they mean. So you're bringing the technology to those smaller organizations that may not mm-hmm. have exposure to those tools. It's it's generally a skills issue is usually what it is. Because you 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 think about like when we engage with a with a new client, usually there's like a, a very significant and focused problem they're doing. We're trying to solve this question that's been asked of us, maybe by a regulator or trying to improve the efficiency of a specific type of uh, outreach campaign to our, our customers. And we know we should be able to do this, but it's too hard. We know we have the information, but either it exists in 10 different places or we can get it, but man, it takes us like months to do it. And by the time we get the information, it's stale and we really can't take action. And it's just, there's like all this friction with how we're able to um, both access and and aggregate our data in in a way that you know context makes sense and it's accessible to the people when they need it and and in a form that is useful to them. We have all the ingredients, but the recipe of putting it together like that's the missing part. And so what we usually do is kind of come in and help them with this very tactical problem, solve it you know in a very kind of quick uh, and in usually narrow way. It's just this one problem. And then inevitably, almost every single time, there's like five or six very close adjacent things. We're like, well, if we can do that, we can also do this. We can also do this. Right. And, and then you start kind of talking about things that look and smell more like infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Um, and organizations of this size, it, it makes no sense for them to build out a competency around doing Sure. Big data, or you know, you kind of think about like enterprise level business intelligence type work, right? Like this is the thing they're going to do once, and then you know, eat off of for the next decade, you know, and just get the benefits from it. And it's much better that they focus on you know that service level, that understanding their local market and what makes them stand out, and the advantage, you know, the different opportunities that they can take advantage of, and how they speak to that audience and how mm-hmm. they um, interact with them. Focus on that, and we'll come in and do that heavy lift from the data side that enables you to do. And that's really what our our value prop. And I think it puts you in a great position to ask you some questions that are more about the industry in general and technology and AI in particular. One of the things I wanted to ask you is that with all the talk of, you know, right now, chat GPT and generative Mm -hmm. AI in different industries, can you talk a little bit about banking and financial industry and kind of the tech and data landscape, what it looks like today and where AI has a place and where it's going? One thing specifically from a financial services standpoint is we're kind of at the end of a relatively short but very pronounced investment phase. And this kind of started very slowly in 2019 and then 2020, particularly as as you know, COVID rolled out and all the lockdown issues began, there was a massive investment within financial technology, within fintech. A huge part of it was in the developing world. Latin America and APAC were, were like big parts, but certainly within the U.S., massive, massive investment. And this had kind of been, it, it, that was part of it, like that element of 
well, I went into the bank or, you know, I was dealing face to face for a lot of the, you know, part of what I was doing here, you know, and obviously the friction that kind of came with that and what are the alternatives and, you know, everybody in this space looking for, you know, how can we enhance and improve our digital channels? But the other piece of it was how some of the, the, the industry was structured and some of the regulatory frameworks that came out of the Great Recession in 08. The, the big legislation piece was called the Dodd-Frank Act, um, and that was fairly comprehensive in what it was what it was meant to do and what it did. But there were certain things in there, particularly with how payments were handled, credit card payments and um, debit card payments. There, there was one piece of it, if you want to look it up, you can go into it, called the Durbin Amendment. And it had to do with how large institutions were capped on the fees that they could charge, interchange fees, right? So you think about use your credit card for something, the, um, the the store that you go into pays Visa or MasterCard or Discover or EMV or whoever else, uh, or your card, um, you know, a fee on that, you know, usually some fixed fee of a couple of pennies and then anywhere between point and a half and three points, depending on the card. And there was a there, part of that legislation capped that. And, and that all sounds like good. And there was some carve outs for smaller institutions but what ended up happening was there were several companies that saw this as like, this is our foot in the door. This is how we can kind of do that. And the two that had the big, took the biggest advantage of that was Venmo, which was eventually purchased by PayPal, and then Cash App, which was built out of Square. Square is the, the um, uh, dongle, hey, hot dog stand, be able to take mm -hmm. a, a, a credit card from your iPhone, right? And they got into the peer-to-peer -peer payment space and particularly peer-to-peer -peer payments on debit cards. And all of this is like nuts and bolts and inside baseball, but what it ended up resulting in was this massive adoption of these two companies that consumers previously would have nothing to do with from their day-to-day -day finance standpoint. And they were able to grow to tens of millions of users within a short time period. There's a, there's a great chart that came out from uh, uh, an equity firm called uh, Arc Investment, where they showed the biggest uh, cons uh, uh, commercial, sorry, um, consumer banking uh, institution in the world, or at least in the U.S., J.P. Morgan Chase, and they grew to what they are today, basically on acquisitions by buying other banks, and they did their multi-billion-dollar acquisitions between 1990 and like the late teens, and. It took them that long to get to roughly the same number of accounts, dollars is different, but number of accounts um, that uh, Venmo did in like seven years and Cash App did two years faster than that. And you just see this like nice steady growth for JP Morgan Chase and then these like exponential jumps for these FinTech companies. Mm -hmm. And that was the thing that opened the door that said, there's a huge opportunity here for technology companies, companies you wouldn't think of as this is somebody I do money stuff with, to come in and, and do that opportunity. And so like that that really kind of opened the floodgates and you just saw that like accelerate with the amount of primarily venture, but PE money that just like flooded into the sector starting in 2020. FinTech startups have been really disrupting the financial space. And so how, and I guess you kind of answered this or touched on it, but then how do banks keep up the larger organizations? Yeah. And is there a way to utilize their data better in order to do that? You know, traditionally, I would imagine they do a lot of things like segmentation, 
to try to reach high margin customers, but is there a yeah. better way to kind of think about and view their data and utilize AI in order to be able to keep up with the disruption or yeah. said acquisition the way to go? There's a lot here, but I'll, I'll hit on, on two points to not go too far down the rabbit. One is th that service level, that customer service of like, you're here dealing with a neighbor who understands you, who understands where you are. Where the community banks and credit unions have done well, traditionally, has been the in-branch experience. When you go in and you're dealing with the teller, you're dealing with the loan officer, you're dealing with the branch manager, their ability to just to sit and talk with you at a, a, a level of interaction, and not just being friendly, but like generally being there of service to you, that has really been their core competence, their core differentiator. Where they have struggled is extending that same experience once you leave the bank doors, once you're out there and you're dealing with them via digital channel. And you don't see the same, not even like UI, but customer experience on the digital side. And that's one of the areas that a lot of fintech companies really kind, kind of came in and were able to do, were able to use a lot of the things you saw from e-commerce, particularly like you know, the, the benchmark of Amazon, and what you saw from social media, have that experience, that similar experience, mm -hmm. take a lot of the friction out of it and help them do things very easy. That's one element of it is, can they do a better job in how they interact with customers that are increasingly, particularly younger customers, everybody's interested in millennials and particularly Gen Zs at this point, um, can they do a better job in acquiring and, and retaining those customers because they have different requirements and different expectations from what they want from a service provider? The other one is on the data side. And the CX piece and the personalization, that is very much data-driven. That's, that's a big part. I'm not saying that's not data. But on the data side in particular, um, the, the fintech is a big term. And sometimes it means companies that are in direct competition. To um, you look at like one of the big heavy hitters here is SoFi. Um, SoFi started off essentially as an arbitrage around student loans. They looked at the student loan environment, saw that there were a whole bunch of loans for people that were much, much lower risk than what the loan was was priced at. And we're able to come in there and basically say, I'll give you the same loan, we'll refinance it for X percent less. That puts so many hundred dollars in your pocket. Tremendous success. They did a great job. Very quickly, they went from that into more traditional banking services. Hey, we did, we did your student loan for you. You know what? Why don't you do direct deposit with us for your paycheck? And we'll also take care of your bill pay. Also, here's all of our partners that do invest in it, right? So very quickly getting into the rest of other elements of your financial life than just dealing with this headache of a student loan, right? So that that's fintech as a competitor. The other piece is fintech as we're going to do this one point product solution that we do for you very well, bolt that into um, what you offer your customers already. Uh, and that could be like very simple things like mobile access, peer-to-peer -peer payment. Um, th that one got a little uh, interesting because the banking industry created their own essentially peer-to-peer -peer payment solution in Zelle. But then there's also things like no community bank is is probably ever going to offer crypto brokerage, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's too far off. But Coinbase 
makes it very easy for you to kind of add that into your your bank account for a lot of like my bank um, has that as an availability. Like I can look at my all of my bank accounts and then also see, oh, I also have two bits of Ethereum in there. Oh, like, you know, things like that. Like adding that in as a bolt up. And the under the, the the integration behind that, the thing that makes that work is this kind of emerging standard called open banking. Um, and this is this is very interesting. And I, I know we want to get into the regulatory piece here in a minute, but I'll, I'll touch on it here. It's very interesting from the standpoint of is it is both an opportunity um, and a compliance issue um, for banks because the 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 liability of of making something available and very easily being able to bolt on a third-party product to say your checking account, your savings account, kind of the traditional banking things. That has gotten much easier. Look at companies like Plaid, uh, MX are two of the, the big players in there. Make that very easy to do. You can just like, oh, add banking account, sure. Let me just put my credentials in and you know, off we go. But it also, for a lot of particularly smaller institutions, creates a risk. Because if that partner doesn't do right, or they have a leak, or they have an issue, there can be not just from a brand standpoint, but from a regulatory standpoint, some liability that comes back on you. Sure. So there's a don't go too fast, don't do it standpoint. But at the same time, you see agencies, in particular, the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau is pushing banks to say, no, 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 you need to make this available that the, the data that you have about your customers, you may be a custodian for it, but it really belongs to your customers. And if they want to use it with a third party, you can't lock it behind your lock it behind your own firewall, right? You have to be able to have them make it available. So, so they're kind of getting like squeezed in both directions from that standpoint. And from a regulatory standpoint, it's like all stick, right? Like, they, they're going to have a compliance issue to both do something, but then not do things that are sure. going to get in trouble. Sure. How do how do I make my my digital offerings, my non face to face experience, better for my consumers? Yeah, and that's really interesting that there is the push um, from the consumer agencies to say make the data available. Is mm -hmm. this there is there is nobody that's as heavy handed nor as complicated really as what you see in financial services. Just, yeah. just the sheer not like how hard it is to be a compliance officer at a financial institution. Like just the the breadth of what you're expected to not only understand, but also ensure that your own company is in compliance with. Like it's and the only saving grace on this is a lot of times the regulations are you need to have a compliance program. We're not going to dictate what that is. Here's the tenets of what you need to do and not do, but you create your own your own program and your compliance with us is you proving to us that you're mm -hmm. meeting your own program. Right. Interesting. So that gives it, there's, there's a little bit of give and take and that's kind of how they're able to kind of make it work between institutions that are like orders of magnitude and different size and complexity. So how do you as the consumer and this is kind of going a little bit of a detour just because sure. that raises a question to me. How do you use it? So you have, let's say, institution A that has a really stringent compliance program. And so they're making really, really sure that they are up to the regulatory codes versus institution B 
that is a little bit more of a lax compliance program. But if they're both sticking to their programs, then from a compliance perspective, they're both doing good. What is the way to differentiate or discern between them as a consumer saying, I'd rather go with institution A because they're much more serious about compliance? I'll pretty much say at this point, and this is somewhat controversial with how um, the Fed and the Treasury particularly responded to like Silicon Valley Bank, right? There were a few institutions that were like, hey, look at us, look at our, look at our, the technical compliance. We have these things called like camels for banks. Like, look at, look at our camels reports. We're doing everything right. That's not going to happen to us. A big part of it is I'm not so much picking my bank based on this bank is safer than that bank, or I know something that they don't, because frankly, SVB, you had some of the most sophisticated financiers in the world all decided to act in concert and, you know, kind That's of fair. That can't, you can't do it. So it's, it's much more about, do I have faith and confidence in the U.S. government that they're not going to sure. let the banking sector collapse? As they did, step in. And yeah, and sure there was a whole other discussion we could have on moral hazard and everything. But like when you when you look at like what happened in in 08 after the collapse of the housing market and and you know the, the underlying CEOs that fell apart and you saw Lehman Brothers collapse and then just this you know massive kind of knock on effect from that. Mm-hmm. By and large, that was pretty orderly handled. I, I know that there's there's a there's a lot of public outrage that like nobody went to prison for right yeah like, there wasn't a lot of personal accountability but you also saw that boy there there were no there were like almost no individuals I mean outside of equity holders like people that had stock and interests but like people who were depositors in different banks particularly as they like, collapsed nobody got left holding the bag I mean e- even when they were getting into like dozens and hundreds of very small institutions that were failing. It was like, hey, yeah. we stepped in on Sunday afternoon and Monday you got a new bank, but everything worked as 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 promised. There was no interruption. You never had like no access to money. You know, you didn't miss your heating bill. Like that was all very smooth, which kind of proved the point that all of the mechanisms that are underneath this, that are pretty much at the federal level, right? How it's how it's held together, it it worked, right? You know, and we can thank Hamilton for that. So yeah, you can argue a lot about the yeah. you know the role of government and how much it needs to be involved or not. Sure. Um, yeah. But in this case, this is something that I think pretty yeah. solidly was clear. But, but I think that's the bet. You're not betting on the individual institution. You're, right. betting, you're betting on the backing on the of yeah. the of the systems that are behind. That's fair. That's yeah. that's a very fair point. After SVB, like all of this SVB and then Republican signature, right? They all happen in one queue. And the, the interesting thing was going to be like, and other people, the other nerds that look at things like call reports and P&Ls and balance sheets and banks, like I was talking to a bunch of them, like, okay, what's going to happen, right? Is there going to be this massive capital? And at the end of 1Q, you saw, I think, overall deposits. Like you just look at the deposit asset level for banks across the US. I think it went down by maybe a point and a half, maybe 2%. And that might have that might have just been noise, right? It wasn't like people putting it in the math. There was obviously, particularly with Republic going to JP Morgan Chase, you saw the bigger banks getting slightly bigger. And there was some move from, from these kind of mid-sized, what's called a regional bank, there was some move of assets to the larger banks, Chase, Bank of America, mm-hmm. um, 
and uh, U.S. banks, ones like that. But what you saw on the community side was they actually, they contracted a little bit, but much less than the average, which was basically saying, you know, Joe Consumer, at the end of the day, he wasn't thinking, oh my God, my bank's going to go out of business. I need to move my money somewhere else. That didn't happen. And that was kind of reflects essentially their, their confidence in maybe their local institution, but probably that that broader banking system yeah. and that the U.S. government was behind. Yeah. And that certainly was the most important thing yeah. in all of this to make sure that that continued to be stable. Um, so looking from a broader view of financial data and the tech stacks, what would you say today are probably, in your mind, the most strategic uses of AI in the financial industry today or moving forward? I think a lot of this is is very similar to just broadly, you kind of look at like how generative AI is transforming a lot of advertising, marketing, just the general go-to-market, right? Because there is no longer a, a market for bland, boring press releases, right? That has gone away. Now, Microsoft Word will do that for you, right? It It's more... How can you take what you know and, again, be more personalized, be more individualized in what you do? And you now have a set of tools that will help you scale them very well. It will help you be 5, 10, 15 times as effective in what you're doing because you can more narrowly focus. It's do I know who I'm talking to and do I know what's going to resonate with them? And that's really the value. The, the, the heavy lifting, the execution part of it, like that's getting a lot easier. And, it, and this, is, this is one thing I'll say, just kind of stepping away from this particular use case in, in financial services, where AI has done well is it takes the expert and it makes them more productive. Mm-hmm. It takes the engineer. You, you look at things like uh, Copilot, right, that Microsoft has done. Uh, on on the code, code generation, code writing. They built it into their tool set, like like Visual Studio, et cetera. And it's taken someone who knows what they're doing, who's very effective at it, and says, hey, we're gonna we're gonna do things like your your test routine and um, a lot of code documentation and um, code notation. And we're we're gonna make you like 10 times faster like that. We're gonna handle a lot of like the tedious skills that are in there. So that you're just focusing on solving the really important problems, the problems that are novel, the things where you add the most value, and the stuff that's figurative paperwork that you do. Yeah. We're gonna we're gonna take a lot of that away. So it's it's that that's one example, but you see that in a lot of different domains, a lot of different places where it's take the expert and make them much more productive. What I haven't seen is take the novice or the person that has a lot of gaps in their skills or is not very experienced and make them an expert. So there's still, at least as it is today and where you've seen this played out, there's still an awful lot of value in expertise and experience. There's a great essay, um, James Courier at NFX, Network FX. NFX is a VC firm out in San Francisco. He wrote a great essay on this about speed times AI. And he, he says, you know, basically what he's, he's telling people that he's dealing with, he's largely dealing with like founders and people doing new things, but he's saying, don't be the person that gets it right. Be the person that learns the fastest, right? 
which he's saying, like, jump in, jump in with both feet. It may not be the thing, and it's going to have a lot of issues, and it's going to be clunky. But you want to be able to, you know, be on the learning path of how do I leverage this in what I'm doing? And how do I get to that point of going from the expert to the 10x expert? You know, we talked a little bit about privacy and certainly mm -hmm. how it's fascinating to me with open banking that it really is this kind of tightrope walk around privacy that on one hand, it's a little bit more sharing, a little bit more interoperability between mm -hmm. institutions. But on the other hand, such tight regulations around privacy, just like mm -hmm. with healthcare. But the other risk that I want to talk about has to do specifically with the data itself, and that is the risk of bias. Mm -hmm. Now, yeah. we know and have known for years that there's, you know, there's been issues with AI amplifying human bias, and especially in financial mm -hmm. algorithms, such as risk of default and who you decide to give a mortgage to. Certainly incomplete or unrepresentative data sets could limit AI's objectivity, if you could even call it that, and, and biases in development team that also train these systems could perpetuate mm -hmm. that cycle of bias. You know, and, and like I said, lending is a prime example of where the risk of an AI system being biased against marginalized communities has been very real. Yeah. What are your thoughts about that and how to avoid yeah. prevent that moving forward? Yeah. I So I, I will say that this is one of the main reasons why we focus on community financial institutions, smaller banks, right? Below 10 billion in assets. Um, we actually say in, internally in our mission statement is, if community banks aren't able to effectively serve their markets, our neighbors suffer. I don't believe that America would be better served by a large consolidation within the financial services market, within banking. Okay. And, that is largely because of this issue, this access issue, right? That there, there, there's an idea, um, there was a professor at Columbia named C.K. Pollock, and he wrote a book called Fortune at the Bottom of the Pyramid. And it, he was basically kind of talking about how a huge swath of the world's poor um, was underserved by many services, government, but, but also commercial services. And he was kind of saying like, you're not really a full citizen unless you can buy electricity, buy water, buy goods and services, buy financial services, get access to government services, right? And the, the, just by the, the fact of who they were and where they lived, they were cut off from that. But he was also able to show that there's a tremendous business opportunity there and that building businesses that serve entire marginalized nations, let alone communities or, or individuals, um, there was actually like a profit motive for it, that it, it wasn't a al completely altruistic approach. But there was ways to do that. There was a number of companies that really jumped on this and did very well, particularly in construction and housing became like a big part of it. Um, so like, there's a very interesting sidebar there, but, but it's this idea of you're not completely a citizen if you cannot access say, lending or banking or payments, right? If you're regulated to, say, cash only, you're you're being sidelined, right? You're being forced into, like, mm -hmm. a, a black market for how things get done, right? And it it's not like you're paying less for that. It's actually, like, more expensive for yeah, you, you end up than somebody more. who is more well-off. And it has, and it has nothing, it, again, like the SoFi thing, 
it's it's not because it's adequately risk adjusted. It's just like the channel is not there. Yeah. Um, so when I hear things like Janet Yellen, who's the Treasury Secretary, say, well, we would like less banks because the number of banks that are out there now is like too difficult to regulate. That gives me the willies, right? I don't like that idea. I understand there's a tactical problem to be solved, but I think we need to have a lot of different organizations that, are, again, are very local, very tied in, that are not at the industrial scale, where if you have a prop, and this, this is the thing, back to back to the, the Venmo catch up thing. The biggest problem they ran into was if you had a problem with one of those, like if you were doing direct deposit into one of those, boy, number one, your deposits aren't FDIC insured. So you're you're at risk, right? You're almost like a stockholder at that point. Mm -hmm. And number two, good luck getting help if there's a problem, right? It is not going to get resolved in any reasonable amount of time, if at all. You know, and so that's when a lot of the regulators started stepping in. I'm suddenly dealing with this giant monolith um, who is not allowing me access to my money or holding up my deposits or, you know, not getting uh, my rent paid on time, right? N not having anybody to deal with, that is like an immensely anxiety producing. Absolutely. And double that for communities that are traditionally under underbanked or not well served by by large institutions, right? And a lot of times they're relying on these like local ones. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, to your, your point on bias, right? This gets back to that that data. I think that the idea, and I've seen this floated a couple of times of like, well, there should just be like a massive database of all the financial information that's out there about everybody. And then there would be way more efficiency in what happens and, and how it could be approached. And I would say, look at how the credit reporting agencies have done with that, right? Nobody likes that experience. Nobody thinks they've done right by many individuals. Now, granted, they, they do provide a service. They, they give an awful lot of efficiency. They take this, this service of like underwriting and assessing individual credit risk and make it very easy and cheap for institutions to do that. So it's not all bad. But as stewards of large swaths of information, right? <laughs> yeah. Look at like many tech agencies. Look at like the myriad of issues and legislation that have like rounded up about like Facebook and their approach. E even if you think Cambridge Analytica was nonsense, I don't want to do business with the bank of Facebook, right? Like I don't see that as a benefit to me, even if it means my mortgage is, you know, half a point less. Like, that is not a good trade-off from my standpoint. Right. So I, I, I don't see this as a sector of the economy that we would be better off as a country if it were consolidated in more, not like a monopoly, but like an oligarchy, right? Because again, you look at things like the local commercial real estate development, particularly small business investment, it is because of these smaller local institutions that many of that gets done. So, Rich, you had mentioned that uh, you had spent time at Watson IBM, um, which was a great organization on the forefront of AI and, and technology. Um, yes, we all remember when Deep Blue uh, won Jeopardy. And so you had a front row seat to the changing of technologies over the past decade. What would you say are the most important? 
impactful changes to data and technology in that time. There's a lot of discussion about the data that was used for training. There's a lot of like open legal and ethical questions about that. You can kind of look back a couple of years to what happened with facial recognition mm -hmm. and how that has played mm -hmm. out and like the massive reverse the whole industry has taken on that. I am very long on first party data. The data that companies have about them, their industry, their customers, how things work, that is only going to appreciate in value. And it's going to kind of go from this version of, we kind of talked about it before, where data is a, is a liability, it's a compliance issue, to where now it is a very productive operating asset. And it's, in fact, maybe where most of your differentiation is going to come yeah. from as a company. Rich. Thank you so much for this conversation. It was very enlightening and I really enjoyed your perspective on, on some of these topics. Thanks for having me. This is, this is great. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks for joining us today and listening to this episode. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast. And if you have any questions you'd like addressed, send them to who'syourdatanow at gmail.com. That's who'syourdatanow, all one word, at gmail.com. Thanks and see you next time on Who's Your Data? <laughs>